0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known. Please be advised that in this episode, there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting. Welcome to What I Wish I'd Known, in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational speakers and work experience opportunities. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And in this podcast, we talk to extraordinary people who've lived astonishing lives, brushed with displacement, disease, financial ruin, abandonment, bereavement. And not only have they survived, but thrived.
1: Loss and adversity are a part of life, but an imperfect past isn't always an indicator of what's to come. But why is it that often the people with the hardest beginnings in
0: life become the most successful adults? And is there something to learn from these people, who perhaps have the strongest sense of what matters most?
1: In this series, we'll be speaking to a collection of remarkable individuals on how they achieved success in the face of adversity. And we'll be reflecting
0: on some of our greatest interviews to date with new thoughts and revelations. Welcome to What I Wish I'd Known. So where are we going
1: in this episode, Alice? So we're going to Essex and we've travelled to meet sporting legend Fatima Whitbread. Fatima found fame for her athletic achievements when she broke the world record for javelin throwing in 1986, won bronze and silver medals at the Olympics and took the gold at the World Championships. We loved watching her when we were growing up. She was like a warrior princess with her spear. Now she's become a heroine to a new generation, as a reality TV star. It was a beautiful sunny
0: day when we met with Fatima. In fact, we had the back door open in her living room and you can hear the birds in her immaculate garden.
1: It was an incredibly calm backdrop, but what was so extraordinary was we never realised when we were watching her pick up all those medals how horrific her childhood had been.
0: It was almost a Dickensian childhood. She was abandoned at birth as a baby and grew up in children's homes. Even worse, when she was only 11, she was sexually abused and her half-brother tried to abduct her from school.
1: Sport was her escape. She wasn't going to be a victim. She wanted to be the best, to be a winner and to prove the people who'd rejected her wrong.
0: I think that's what's extraordinary about her, is that she absolutely refused to let anyone pity her or feel sorry for her or um, make her sound in any way as if she couldn't cope. She really wanted to help others and to feel that she was in control, even as a very young child, I think.
1: And I think she still does. As we did the interview, she was sitting with her dog Bertie and Irish Jack Russell and on the wall opposite them there was this huge picture of him and all his brothers and sisters on the wall on a long horizontal canvas
2: brothers and sisters no. yeah. I sit on the far left, Maisie, Bubble, his sister. Okay. Bobby who's laying down. <laughs> Olive, he's just had a, a little dogs and then Bertie. That's all been taken individually as Christ. Uh,
0: Bertie's almost more like a sort of teddy bear or a talisman for her. You can see that she absolutely loves this dog and that he's very necessary to her.
1: And he sat on the sofa between us for the whole interview, happily dozing between Fatima and me. And
0: as we're getting the mics set up, you can't help but notice that Fatima's home feels incredibly sporty. There are lots of straight lines and it's very clean and there's a golf putting carpet right in the middle where she plays very competitive golf with her son.
1: And there was even a life-size bronze statue of her hand holding a javelin. It
2: was huge. It is, because it is a life-size cutout. Yeah. And that's it, you know, back in, the twen- in my 20s, then obviously um, I was at my uh, peak. Yeah. so um, Madame Swords made that for me because I was in in, in 87 I was in Madame Two swords so quite an honor and uh, it was nice of them to make that for me so it's a good remembrance amazing. of those those days yeah. and is
0: that the perfect technique to hold a javelin
2: yes I certainly would take that with me when I'm coaching with the youngsters through sport I've been able to um, live a, an amazing life and an experience an amazing multitude of things and learn a whole lot more about myself and what I'm able to do and what my limitations are. And, of course, Javelin throwing was where I found myself and that was my career. My career finished when I was in my 20s, probably eight years too too soon because I ruptured a rotator cuff muscle in my right arm. Back then, you know, they didn't have keyhole surgery. Had they have had it, then I would have probably been able to have made a, a, a respectable comeback. But only being able to throw 60 metres when I got back after my operation, I mean, it would have made the international team, but it would certainly... <laughs> <laughs> it was certainly not... Not
1: record-breaking.
2: Yeah, and, and you become a victim of your own success then because obviously everybody's looking for you yeah. to perform at that same level. Yeah. And for me, it would have... The of, of of winning the world championships and the European championships and breaking world record as well, that would not have been eclipsed because... I would not have been able to have got to that level anymore.
1: Fatima, still after all these years, sounds disappointed in having to retire from her sport due to injury. But despite the roadblock, she simply continued on a new course, running a successful sports marketing company which managed 24 top athletes
2: over two decades. We had Paula Radcliffe come through our system, we had um, Kelly Holmes and Ewan Thomas. So we had a, quite a level of success. When we talked to Fatima, she actually shows us her shoulder when it completely comes
0: out and clicks and you can still feel the bone. And it must be unbelievably painful, but she, she doesn't care. She keeps going and she's now in her 60s and she's reached new heights of celebrity status with an entirely different generation. She's taken on TV shows such as I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here and SAS Who Dares Wins and she thinks her early life experience helped her against some of the
2: unforeseen challenges in these series. Well, on the second second day, I'm um, jumping out the helicopter, I cracked three ribs. Unfortunately, um, it wasn't a problem jumping out into the water, but what what we weren't told and we should have been told, I suppose, is that the bottle that was on our belt <laughs> is flotaceous. So when we went into the water, the water bottle on the, the belt on your trousers bounced back up and it hit a couple of us in the ribs. Some of us weren't too bad, but I cracked three oh, ribs oh. and that was quite painful as the days went by although uh, it wouldn't stop me I think my, as you say the mindset is very strong yeah. And I'm, through my early days my primary care years have been sort of a fighter survivalist I learnt not to, to say anything just to get on with it because I didn't really want to be pulled out of the process at that early stage
1: mm-hmm. In this episode of What I Wish I'd Known Fatima Whitbread the Olympian businesswoman TV personality mother fighter survivor tells us her story of how she faced adversity and became a sporting icon. Fatima began life in a flat in London, left to die by her
0: mother when she was only weeks old. She shares with us what little she knows about her start in life.
2: I mean, as a baby, I was abandoned, left in the flat to die, some would have said, but the the neighbour who reported it to the police, the police came and rescued that baby, I was made a ward of court by Hackley Borough Council, Stoke Newington area. As the years went by, I was um, placed in a home in Hoddesdon, in Hertfordshire, Wormley. And it was uh, interesting because there was 25 other children that were in that same home. So from naught to five, we stayed in the home. But during that period, obviously, nobody explained anything. So I wasn't aware that I had any brothers or any siblings. And at five years old... I mean, before that even, most of the kids were emotionally disturbed. What was happening a lot of the time for me was I was looking out the front window. Anybody that came into the car park and I'd say, is that my mummy? Or when am I going home? Most of the kids were, like, emotionally stressed. Emotional needs weren't really being met. Fortunate enough, we had some some nice younger uh, carers. One of them was Corrie, who... Was the aunt one of the aunties there? Who was quite good with us kids, but uh, at five, I think there's quite a, a lot to process when you're told by the matron one morning to be ready and sit down in the reception area because your biological mum and your childcare officer is going to come and and take you to your the new children's home where your half brother and sister are living.
1: Oh my goodness! So what, what you did had you... no idea,
2: yeah, none at all, none at all.
1: So what did you feel when you met your mum? What what was she like? Well,
2: I mean, I've never called her that. I always call her my biological mum. Okay. Um, And the reason for that is because I've never experienced anything uh, parental as far as she's concerned. Yeah. She's deceased now, so uh, sadly, uh, for for the other siblings, because I think they had more to do with her than I did. Why did
0: she come back then?
2: Well, what it was, the social uh, services decided that they wanted to bring the children together. Under one roof, and so therefore, you know, obviously they decided to to move me closer to the other two siblings who were in the in the home in Ockendon. So I was sitting there waiting, and obviously, uh it was a bit of a shock because um, I was I wasn't knowing really what to expect, mm. and I was looking through the opaque window, and I saw this sort of cerise colour pink movement, and then after that, the doorbell rang, and the matron opened it, and she welcomed them in. And a big, burly lady came in with dark, curly hair. And when she smiled at the matron, she had a gold tooth there. And there was this big woof of perfume, I remember, coming through the door. And then standing behind her was a small, linear... Lady, sort of mousy colour hair with a duffel coat on. And I thought, oh, that must be my mum. Don't ask me why. <laughs> yeah. Because I can't I can't explain it. As a five-year-old, I must have thought it, she just looked kinder. Yeah. And that was my interpretation of what my mum should, should be. Should be, yeah. And I remember the house matron called me over and introduced us. But the lady never made eye contact at all. And the social worker, I sat in the front of the car and she sat in the back. Biological mum, not a word was spoken all the, all the journey down. And I remember looking out the window, crying all the way down, thinking, oh. "Why am I leaving this mm. place? This is my home, and these children are my family." Mm. Yeah. And it was a—it's quite a lot for a five-year-old to process.
1: And Did she ever explain why she'd left you in that flat as a baby?
2: Not—not not a word's been ever spoken between us. She, she, when I say that, I mean we got to the other home, and uh, when we got there, um, the auntie met met us in the driveway, and she said. Well, Fatima ran along, she said, go into the, uh, the back garden, she said, and play with the other children, she said, while I sort things out here. And, of course, I sort of went to the back garden and then I felt this tug on my clothing and I looked down and there was this little girl standing there looking up at me with her glasses on. She said, oh, you must be my half-sister. So I, <laughs> so I sort of looked at her and smiled. She said, well, well, come, she said, we're going to play on the climbing frame because that's where all the children were. So as I walked to the climbing frame and started to go up the stairs, I felt this hand come across my chest and this tug. And she said, you look after your sister, I like cut her your throat. Like this and that thinking. was your mother and that was the biological mum the yeah.
1: first thing she said to you yeah
2: virtually. that was the first words that she spoke to me oh.
1: yeah. <laughs> and did you have one sibling or two
2: well then the young boy came over um, when the biological mum was out and both the biological the two see, her brother and sister started talking in the mother tongue and that's when I realised they knew her and must have lived with her obviously to learn the language but I obviously didn't know any of them disappointment was was the fact that I thought well you know I'm now here and I don't want to be here I want to be back where I was with the other children but I got to to settle down and got used to it but within about a couple of weeks social services felt that it would be a good idea for all the family to go back to 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 hers for for a few weeks but then I started trying to convince myself that this might be a good thing I'll have a mummy and uh, everything's going to be fine And um, we we walked down the road once she picked us up. And I can um, remember now she poked her elbow in my chest and she's gone to a bag here and she's poked this money in my hand. She said off she said back she said i don't want you we don't love you and and the kids say we don't love you we don't love you
1: oh,
2: um. so i kind of walked back never not knowing whether to be happy because i really didn't want to go but at the same time i'd convinced myself maybe this was what i should do it's and double it would be rejection
0: okay. basically yeah did yeah. you know the way back
2: to the home um it's a straight road so i did kind mm. of remember it so once i got back The house auntie said, oh, I've been crying. She said, what what are you crying for? Why are you... Oh, I said, "Um, she doesn't want me to go with them. So, and she took the half a crown out of my hand. She said, okay, go in the garden, off you go and play. And that was that. (laughs) Within about, I think, a month, she'd taken them back and I never saw them for quite some time. And then, of course, I was told the father, the biological father also was going to make contact and perhaps take me... For a weekend. And I remember sitting on the wall waiting all weekend when uh, he was supposed to turn up and he didn't turn up on a Saturday. And then I sat there all day long waiting, very disappointed. And then I said, "Okay, well, I'll sit on the wall Sunday and wait. Nobody turned up. And it it was uh, quite disappointing, really.
1: It's just heartbreaking, especially when she'd taken your siblings. He'd said he wanted to make contact. Yeah. You you must have just had this huge sense of abandonment and betrayal.
2: I think most of the children did, you see, because at the end of the day, that's, that that's the sad thing about children's homes. I was in the home for 14 years, but at the age of 11... The social services thought it might be a good idea for the mother to come back, the biological mother to come back on the scenes, maybe to get me back there, living there again.
1: But that was a disaster, wasn't it? Yes, it what, was. Yeah. What
2: happened? Well, um, Auntie Ray, who's Auntie Ray. I mean, I think you might might have heard me talk about Auntie Ray. She's mm. a love. She was a lovely lady, a Cockney lady who lived in our children's home. She didn't live there, but she was a seventy-two-hour lady. But so for me, she was like, for, like for a lot of children, she was our. Uh, shining star she always used to wake us up in the morning and go ka-choo, ka-choo, ka-choo. come on <laughs> and i always used to lay in bed and i'll wait until auntie ray came on duty i'd go under the covers and until auntie ray woke us up and gave us that little cuddle like ruffling of the sheets around our little chins my day hadn't started so yeah. i would always wait for her to come and do that and another i remember is that i used to watch her go back home from the port window on the on the t- uh, middle area of the landing and watch her where she go and where she live. And then one day decided to pick some daffodils around the, the home. Probably daffodils I shouldn't have picked, but nevertheless, I was only around about 10, 10 years old, a little bit a little bit older. And then I knocked on her door, and, uh, I, and when she opened it, I sort of said, will you be my mummy? Yeah, and she said, oh, fat. She said, come, she said, uh, let's go, come round the back. She said, let's have a cup of tea. She said, and, um, and we'll have a chat about this. So I thought, oh, I'm going to be in trouble now. <laughs> so she said, now, come on, Fat. She said, you know, she said, I've got to be a mum to all those children. She said, I can't just be mum to you. She Fine. said, but here's the thing. She said, you can be their mum. She said, when I'm not there. She said, when I'm not there, you can be, mum. She said, they need you. So she taught me in giving you receive. And And there
1: was some love, at least there.
2: Yes, there was lovely lady. She's not alive anymore, Mm. sadly. Yeah, that's a thundering loss, really. Why do you think
0: they kept trying to find your mother and get her to come back?
2: I don't know. I think social services during that period of time were trying to connect the families together. You can only really do that, I think, if you have an understanding, a clear understanding of what family life is for those young kids. It's not always ideal. Mm. And uh, certainly wasn't for me, because when I went back, I was sexually abused by and raped by the mother's lover. No. When I look back, I look at it, and I think the elder brother, the half-brother, and the younger sister, half-sister, they had the same father, and that was the, the gentleman that sexually abused me. He was in and out of prison. So I think whilst he was in prison, she met somebody... And that discretion ended up with her being pregnant with me. So when he came out, he decided that he didn't want the baby. So she had to get rid of the baby. And I think that's why the baby was left. Oh, I see.
1: Did she know what he
2: did to you? Yes, she did. She came out of when I was screaming. Yeah. And oh. she hit me over the head with a small little table in the, in the hallway to tell me to shut up. How the old? The police were you? is going to come. 11. Oh, mm. goodness.
0: So young. Did you have any idea what was happening
2: to you? No, I just froze. And the worst of it was um, when he went back out to the bedroom with her, the lounge door didn't have a lock on it, and he came back into the room again. So I hid behind the chair, and I could see the silhouette of his movement. He was drunk as well, and I could see the silhouette of the movement around the room. It was petrifying.
1: And she didn't try to protect you?
2: Well, no, she just screamed at him. But she screamed at me because I was making a lot of noise when eventually I could make noise at first. I couldn't. I was trying to scream and I couldn't. Yeah, it was frightening. How did you get rescued? Well, what happened then is I decided, because I could, because he came back in the room again, I I waited for the opportunity to run by him, push by him, and I banged on the door where my half-brother was. He was much older. And in, in the room with his girlfriend it was the only room that had a lock on it so I felt happier being in there with them doing <laughs> whatever they were doing mm. and at least I was in at least safe away from him and the next day I begged the half-brother to put me on the bus so I could leave and go back to the home
1: did you tell him what had happened
2: yeah yeah, of course.
1: And what did he say?
2: No, because he came out when, this, when, the, when the biological mum was screaming and was trying to hit me over the head with the table. Oh. He was with his girlfriend so he wasn't he was preoccupied let's put it that way and then when he came out and he's trying to I think hush hushed everybody up. And what did the care home say when you came back? When the biological mother came down to collect me she had two two gentlemen with her And Auntie Ray said, "I'm not letting you go. They look—they look like pimps." (laughs) Yeah. And she tried to ring the social services, and all she got was, "No, that you know, she she has to go. She has to go with the the biological mum." So, what did Auntie
1: Ray say when you went back? Did you? I never
2: told anybody at first, but then I started being problematic, um, Mm. having problems at school, and therefore, you know, the school then. We were asking questions because I lost interest in everything, mm. even my sport. Then I had to talk to somebody because it was getting worse at school. I wasn't enjoying anything, I was getting in trouble because I was not participating in anything. And uh, I spoke to Auntie Ray, yeah. I said, told her what had happened. And uh, f- thankfully, um, she insisted that um, I spoke with somebody. So I had a child psychiatrist. German lady who was very good. And did you see your biological mother again or not? Um, No, I mean, that was the last time I saw her. Mm. She died when she was 67 and the biological dad 69. So they were both young. One had a brain hemorrhage, he did, and and she had uh, diabetes.
1: And how did you feel when they died? Did you feel almost liberated or did you feel sad?
2: Mm. No, because when well, I, I've been adopted and I lived as a Whitbread for many years, I'd accepted that that um, that my life was was totally different. Mm. I knew it a different way. My brothers only knew me as big sis because when I was uh, fostered into the home, Greg was four and Kirk was two. So for me, it was like I was big sis. Mm. And I was used to being around children all the time because we had lots of kids in the home. So... Uh, it was it was good. The uh, transition into family life was fairly simple and, and and quite you know rapid. And with my sports interest, and my mum was PE teacher, so that made it easier for for us to to bond. And then m- my dad, he, John, sadly passed away a few years ago. He was like very calming. And so. do you think that the sport saved you in some way that you could put all your energy and attention? into yeah. that well sport was as I said my savior at school it's well documented but I'll explain how I met my foster mum. and I was always good at sports so I was a team captain in most events like netball hockey and this particular game we were playing at netball was for the league match and the game went 11 11 12 11 12 or it was quite a heated one and I was being very vocal on the on the court, <laughs> trying to motivate my team and get them to higher level. And the whistle went, the umpire said, uh, young lady, any noise, any more of that noise and you'll be off. So I kind of looked, oh yeah. <laughs> so I was just, okay, okay. Then it got 13, 12, 13 all, and it started getting involved again with the motivational vocal piece and the the whistle went again and it was I've told you once and I'm not going to tell you again so I just sort of went okay okay and uh, her team captain said "Fats, really she's quite strict she'll send you off so I don't know I just somehow we got through and we won um, which was great and then my friend Alma who lived in the children's home around the corner I said you know we both decided this is the end of the netball season it's the start of the uh, athletic season why don't we go to the athletic club and see what we can do? So we decided to to walk from the children's home, which is about five five miles. Anyway, when we got to the track, Alma saw the sprinters and she went off there and I saw this tall, blonde, good-looking fellow chucking what looked like a spear. <laughs> so I headed over there and I went to pick up the javelin and he looked to the coach, the shop put coach behind and he said, she can't do that. So... Jack his name was Jack said young lady he said come over to the stand and wait he said the javelin coach will be here soon so being a bit of a survivalist I was sort of toe tapping saying oh, okay where's this coach then and as I was waiting in the stand he said oh here comes the coach so I was sort of looking and this mini pulled in and this person got out the mini and started walking across the inner field and when when I spotted I looked it's the same woman <laughs> same woman on the, on the netball court <laughs> So with that, I mean, Jack introduced us. Before he could say my name, she said, I know who you are. She said, you're Fatima, aren't you? Well, any of that cheek you showed on the netball court, she said, here, she said, you definitely won't be throwing any javelins.
0: You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. There'll be more from us just after this.
1: Welcome back to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson.
2: I sort of cut my hands together and I said, no, it's okay." I said, I promise you I'll behave. So she said, all right, then. After a few weeks, she started saying to me, you've got a bit of talent, she said, why don't you ask Mum and Dad to come up? She said, and we can talk about getting some kit sorted out and get you into a competition programme. So I just sort of nod my head. And then a couple of weeks later, she said to Jack, has Fatima got a hearing problem? (laughs) So she said, he said, no, why? So he said, well, I'll say to her, look, ask mum and dad to come up. Oh, he said, don't you know, she's one of the kids in the children's homes. And so with that, she came up the following week and she threw these boots down. She said, and she had a javelin too. She said, look, those boots, she said, they're probably two sizes too big for you. She said, stuff them with paper And she said, they'll be fine. So I kind of was excited that somebody had given me something. Nobody ever gives you anything when you live in a children's home. So, you know, that was the first experience. Mm. And it was quite nice to feel like someone had taken the time to think about it. And um, I can always remember that same uh, day, I decided I wanted to get back quick. So we got on the bus. It wouldn't happen now, obviously, with a javelin. I mean, the, the bus driver looked when the doors opened and he went, and I went, <laughs> yeah, nodding my head, pointing a spear at him. Go on, get on the back, he said, and, and behave. So when I got to the children's home, it's the summertime, and any short-stay kids that are there for that short period of time, they usually go home at the summer, and there's only a few of us left, the long stays. And the house parents are away, and they have German students that come in and look after you. So I said to Ingrid, Ingrid, come outside, and I'll show you how I throw this javelin. Um, so it took me two throws to get it up the garden, and then I pulled it out the vegetable patch and stepped forward and I said, "Move out the way now! I'm going to give it a really good throw." And of course, I launched this lovely throw, went smash right through the French windows. No. Yeah. Ingrid's standing there with her head in her hands. Oh no, you're going to be in trouble when they come back. And I said, Yeah, I guess. Look, have you got any sellotape? Let's stick it. I was saying, let's stick it with sellotape. But no, it was it was a hole in the window, and it's you know it wasn't good. So when they came back, I got a month's ban from oh, going no.
1: out. So Which no was,
2: training. Yeah, so no training. It was devastating, really, because, I mean, also meant that I had to come straight back after school. So mm. no sports, no practices. Mm. And it was really hard when you your whole mm. life's really built around sport because, for me, that was the way I earned my respect from my peers because yeah. emotionally too disturbed to always study is scientifically proven fact that kids, you know, if they're emotionally disturbed, can't study. I was nearly 13, 14 at this age and I, I was realising I've got to find something quite quickly because I was constantly being told by the house parents, you'll amount to nothing, you'll end up on the streets as a prostitute, you know, because it was all oh. about prostitution and marijuana in the 70s. Mm. So that's that That was what was facing me apparently. But here I found myself with, with something I, I like to do, mm. sport. I'd seen... The Montreal Olympics, where Mary Peters pentathlon, then which is now the heptathlon, in Munich, and she won the gold medal. And, and I remember thinking, now, that's something I can do. I can do sport. I can make something of myself through sport. You know, I'll be able to succeed. And of course, I was devastated when I smashed the window because it meant that my life was going to be put on hold. And then I started getting these messages from some of the school kids. Ah, Missus Whitbread thinks you've bunked off now and can't be bothered to come anymore and you've sold the boots and the javelin and, and I thought well, that's not true you know mm. so um, two o'clock one morning I got up and I went downstairs in, in into the um, office and in the bureau I pulled out in my ignorance an uh, airmail envelope and I put on there dear Mrs. Whitbread sorry I, I can't come to the track in, at the moment because I smashed the windows and I got a month's ban. but one day I'd like to be the best javelin thrower in the world so I stuck this <laughs> down and I put Mrs. Whitbread St. Chad's School and I tucked it under my arm because every morning you'd go out that door, it was always, the last thing you got is a teaspoon of blackstrap molasses, raw blackstrap molasses stuck in your mouth. <laughs> That's something oh. they believed that kids needed. And I, it would always make me gag, make me feel sick. Yeah. So I'd always hold it under my tongue, get down the road and spit it out. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, And then I posted this letter on the way to school and I waited probably a couple of weeks and I thought, she's not got it. And then all of a sudden I was in the garden and I heard, no, she can't come. She's been ever so naughty and she's not allowed out. Well, Mrs Whitbread must've been quite persistent because within a week I was back at the track throwing again. And then she said to me, oh, she said, um, would you like to come and have tea with with the family Mm. and I said oh yeah that would be lovely so yeah I mean when she said well I'm not much of a cook she said do you like beetroot she said we'll have salad I said what's beetroot (laughs) 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 and so it was quite funny really and when I got to the house um, she picked me up when I got to the house um, my two brothers her son's four and two Greg and Kirk and my dad John, they were there waiting, and uh, yeah, it was fun. I had a really good day, and they they enjoyed it too. And then then she asked me, would I like to have a couple of weeks during the summer to stay? And I said that would be nice. And then they, then it went from there to, how would you like to live with the family? You know, and I told her I was really excited, but also at the same time I was like, I, I don't know if at this age whether or not for me whether I was able to make it work. You know, 14's quite an age. And because I wouldn't see my Auntie Ray, she was like my mother figure. But having said that, Mrs Whitbread, I mean, that the family, they became the best thing that ever happened Mm. to me. So I was very lucky that fate had it, that Mm. I met her that day on the netball Mm. court. And then, of course, at the local athletic club
1: you changed your name by depot to Whitbread, yeah. didn't you? Why was that important? Did you want to feel fully integrated into the family?
2: Mum was teaching at the local uh, school and yeah, it must have been when I was 17 because I used to, mum used to let me use the car once I passed the driving lessons and I used to take my brothers to school and then drop mum off and then I'd go training and then I'd go back down there at 12 o'clock to the school because during lunch break I was able to use the sports hall so I could do all my medicine ball throwing and my net ball net throwing into the net I mean I trained three times a day so that's quite a lot of work unbeknown to me a car pulled up behind me as I pulled into St Chad's school they followed me into the staff room and I remember sitting in there for only been in there five minutes or so, and then two guys came in there and they said, "You out. You're coming back with us." They were the half brothers. <gasps> yeah, so they were trying <gasps> to trying to abduct, abduct, you, abduct me and take me back. How and did your nap- school do? Well, they were like in the staff room. All the teachers were like, "Who are they?" You know, mm. and uh, then they called the security and had them taken off off site but it upset my mum greatly obviously it made shook me and mm. it upset her greatly and um i remember my mum saying to me oh you wouldn't leave us would you and i said no mum why would i do that mm. you're my you're my mum you're this is my family and i said to her well look i'll become a whitbread and we both agreed we would change my name to to whitbread mm. by depot the thing is, when I was an athlete and I came quite successful, having broken the world record in Stuttgart. And, and then won, obviously, the, the next day because I broke the world record in the qualifying round. And everyone said, ah, oh, you got the wrong day. <laughs> Nobody's ever done it before. Gone back the next day and won. And, of course, I did. So I was mighty proud of myself for doing that. And then, of course, uh, the World Championships was the following year. And uh, I won Britain's sole gold medal. So I was making quite a a name for myself as, you know, a successful woman, sportswoman. And it was told to me by my late husband, you're going to need to write your life story. Well, it never crossed my mind to do it. You know, my life story was, uh, to me, I didn't want to tell my life story. I was happy living the life in the moment that I was in. But the only reason why I had to do that was because the sun newspaper had been round to the biological mum, took a picture of me in a frame and had taken a picture of her holding it, saying, "I want my blood daughter back," which was uh, quite upsetting mm. f- for the family, yeah you know and and I said to mum, don't worry about it in the end, I had to write my life story for a re- for the right reasons because it would have been told by other journalists, and mm. probably insensitively and not done properly. So I had to dig all the record books out, social services and, and go through the record books. And everything. And the, the the disappointment of that was it was far too soon for me to do that because mm. when you look, I was adopted, uh, fostered at 14. So I was getting used to being, living in, in the family Whitbread home. And then, of course, the newfound success of my sport so I had really started getting used to that. And then suddenly having that thrusted upon me to have to face reality mm. of what had been. It was almost like a mini film going through my mind, mm. having to write down this, this story on, in, on paper. And it brought me to a breakdown. So in fact, you know, in the winter of 87, I was getting ready. I was trying to prepare for the Olympics in mm. Seoul. And I had the physical and mental breakdown. So it was really not ideal. Mm. Although the book was written, it had it taken its toll on me. Mm. And as strong as willed as I was, and shouldn't have really have gone to the Olympics, I suppose, because I was a very very erratic going up and down. One day throwing 70 meters, another day only making 40 meters. You know, I mean, uh, procrastination was awful. Physically, I felt... You know, that I was walking on cobbled stones sometimes. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, my shoulders and my continuity and um, all terrible. You know, no, nothing felt the same um, from one start of the day to the end of the day.
0: Your mother must have found it really hard because she was your coach as She's well as... my coach, yeah. ...being your mother. And that's so difficult to
2: watch. Yes, it was. And she knew what your talent was. She knew what had happened. She, she couldn't believe what was going on. Obviously... She was in the situation where mother's come first. So mum and daughter or coach or athlete. But it's difficult because when you're on a track, it's coach and athlete. Mm. And when you're at home, it's mother and daughter. But equally, I was quite a driven person myself as an athlete. What, What I gained dramatically really from was being a fighter, the inner strength. The little Fatima, when I look back... Was a, a strong-willed little girl. Because she had to be. Yeah, had to be, yeah. It's swim or sink. And I think Auntie Ray taught me a lot by helping others because I never became a victim.
0: And what was it like when you was on the podium winning your medals? How did you feel?
2: Well, I'd had a quite a lustrous career. I mean, I won 11 major championship medals over 14, 15 years. I won the World Cup, European Cup. A couple of times, I had Commonwealth Games, silvers and bronze and Olympic Games, European gold, <laughs> world record. To be honest, I mean, again, it was, uh, was marvellous, but as I've always said, you know, I mean, I was very fortunate that I was able to compete in an era in the 80s, I think was, was fantastic, golden years, mm. sport booming in this country. And we had some very very big names in the 80s. We had, in all, all all sports, we had Steve Davis in snooker, even Eric Bristow in the darts. We had Nigel Mansell and James Hunt in the motor racing. We had Woosnam and Faldo in golf. I mean, it, it, it's endless. I mean, it was a period of time which was the best years. I mean, t- and to be able to compete amongst the best of the rest in, the, in, in this country as well. I mean, the head-to-head with Tessa was fantastic Mm. for for our event. Cohen Ovet, Daley Thompson.
1: The rivalry and the pressure must have been enormous as well. Were you you more competitive, do you think, because of what had happened to you?
2: Well, I I think it helped the steeliness, you know, the inner strength that it gave to me and the drive and determination. But I was always focused anyway. I mean, Mm. um, my early days, we were always having to be in routine. I mean, with the washing up and drying up, we all, we all had our jobs, polishing the shoes and it wasn't a bad thing really, you know, mm. it, it taught us a great deal and for me, I, it made it a lot easier to process what best way forward in, in management skills, you know, mm. and, and being able to write my own programs, talk to the right people that I needed to with training and generally monitor my daily practices throughout my whole career. The lessons I've learned in my life has taught me a great deal and it's helped me to be the person I am today. And although it um, wasn't ideal, some of the situations I'd say, no, I wouldn't want that to have happened. But the majority of my life, I mean, I've it made me a lot stronger as a character and a will to succeed. And in
0: 1997, you married Andy Norman as the athletics promoter, and you had a son, Ryan.
2: That's right.
0: Was that quite difficult in some ways to see what mothering could be like? Because you must have felt very maternal and emotional towards him and then realised that your own mother didn't towards you.
2: There's the reason why I wanted to be a mum. I proved that I could break that mould and how important it was for me to be a good mum. I've always felt that being a parent was really important for me to feel complete that, you know, that this wasn't just something that, you know, for me uh, my life, and that was it. That's that's my total experience of... Because on the one hand, I mean, I, I started out being rejected and, and having uh, been neglected and felt vulnerable. And on the other hand, I felt the love of the Whitbread family, which was the best thing that happened to me. But the other part of that was to actually break that mold in the history of mothering, what mothering was about, and be a good mum myself. And if I asked my my son, Ryan, did he have a good childhood? He will always answer, honestly, he said, mum, you're the best. So that makes me feel very proud.
0: And when you had your injury, was that physical injury as difficult as having had the mental breakdown that it, Mm. or which which is harder for you to, because you had to give up competing yeah. in the end didn't you? well I had
2: both didn't I so I mean both physical and mental I mean it, it's this it's a very it's a very bitter pill to swallow when you your career is based on your your success in surviving life and then suddenly you lose that but I didn't see it as losing it because I again as I've always said it's the experience of self-growth and I'd already reached a pinnacle with who I was in terms of knowing myself much better and succeeding in as an athlete. I then branched out to using my skills that I'd learned through my athletics, through working with hospitality in athletics, and meeting managing directors and their wives. In and, and when it naturally went into marketing, and I ran the marketing club. So I saw it as this is this is life. You know, it's the next phase of life. Mm. And not to be bitter by it, because I was very lucky to have succeeded. A lot of athletes, sportsmen and women get injured before they even reach the top. So for me, I managed to do that and had quite a level of success. Even though I probably know I would have won another eight years in a row, probably, championships. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It was hard to live through those eight years, Mm. because I still felt young enough to be out there competing. But I was eternally grateful for the fact that I had succeeded and I was in a position then to to sort of learn something new and that was sports marketing and and I learned a little bit more about myself and learning how to apply myself into the business world so the business sector looking up in a Hollis book of records and all the companies and contacting them all and getting Mail-outs to all of them, making points of contact, that sort of thing.
1: And you talked about how you saw a child psychiatrist when you were young. Have you had therapy since?
2: I'm not free of my issues, my primary care issues. I mean, I know I've spoken to the young Fatima who was then as the Fatima I am now. And I take her by the hand and I've I've sort of said it's okay, you know, because you have to address those issues, Mm. what was then and how you deal with those triggers what can trigger you off mm. certain things can make you feel insecure i mean you, whether it be that you you hear an argument wherever you are in a in a, in a club or a pub or something something might just trigger you off mm. you got to know how to deal with it I circumnavigate all the time even now in the age that I am uh, I've learnt an awful lot how to deal with that but as far as uh, counselling goes I never had any counselling up until Covid and Covid hit quite hard for a lot of us if you need that little bit of help there's no harm in taking it because I mean as an athlete I would go to the gym if I needed to get strong so The mind and the body work together as one. Mm -hmm. So it's no surprise if you, you know, why don't you train the the muscle in your brain um, equally? Because the mindset's so important, that can be the, the biggest downfall for you if you don't.
0: Looking back now, yourself at the age of 11, when you were hiding behind that chair and you were in the room with your biological mother and father, what would you say to that child?
2: Well, I have have taken her by the hand and spoken to her about that. I told her, you know, I've got you. It's okay. That's not going to happen again. You know, this is, that's what was then. It isn't now. You can't wipe it away, but at the same time, you don't imprison yourself with it either. I mean, sometimes, you know, we see these um, things playing out in soap operas, in scenes. You know, you see things happening and in the early days that would make me feel isolated, dirty and my fault. But fact I'll tell the young Fatima now, it's not your fault that this happened to you. It's not your fault. It's not like when I was a child, I'd ask the question, what have I done wrong? Why am I living in this home? What have I done wrong? It's actually nothing you've done wrong. That's the way I used to approach the young Fatima. But now, obviously, I mean, we see that there's no hierarchy where pain is concerned and issues because everybody goes through life and no one's untouched. It's welcome to being a human being. It happens. And I think for me, you know, if I can share my emotional intelligence through the things that I've experienced with others to help make them feel stronger, that's really a positive achievement because you know there's so many people that live a life where they isolate themselves because they feel they can't cope or they shouldn't talk about it or they they don't want to share it or they don't want to ask for help in fact that's the best thing you can do you can step out and ask that's the that's the most that that's the hardest bit is asking for the help you know and then once you ask for help there are lots of ways of doing it you don't have to go to um counseling you can do a lot of Podcasts, you can Google most stuff. You can listen to some interesting things that help you, and put it into practice. But initially, I think it's a good thing if you have uh, therapy. I mean, why not? Be like going to the gym. If you offer an instructor to take you for a round around the gym, show you how to use the weights and the equipment, why wouldn't you ask the therapist who's trained in what they do? To help put you on the right track and then after you've done that you can help yourself better.
1: And what would you say to an 11 year old growing up in a children's home now?
2: For any youngster that's living in a home it's really important to be able to connect. If they can find a shining star in their life you know someone that they can they can bond with and connect and share and talk with. I think that's uh, half the, the battle. I mean, most kids that live in the care system and for anyone who's thinking about fostering, um, there's no reason for our young, vulnerable kids or the teens to be difficult to look after. I mean, all they want is a loving, secure home. Somebody who's going to connect with them, share time and be there for them. And you usually find those kids thrive. You know, they don't just survive, they thrive.
0: Mm. And do you think you were really lucky in some ways because you had both a mum and sport in the end? I mean, you had talent and you had
2: love. I would say that for 14 years, I I was struggling, but uh, I was given, yeah, an olive branch when I found my mum through sport. I mean, sport was my saviour. And, uh, you know, I found the love of the Whitbreads, which is the best thing that ever happened to me. And and sadly, there must be through, through having to tell my story that I lost my career, but... You know, that's, that's, again, that was meant to be. And I think all things happen for a reason. You know, it showed me I can still survive without my sport.
1: So what do you think the 11-year-old Fatima would say to you if she could see you now having done all you've done
0: and in this amazing house?
2: <laughs> well, as an 11-year-old Fatima, I was always desperate to find a way through. And I never I never truly allowed myself to believe that it would be would be the case I loved sport that was my saviour and the fact that fate had it that I met my adoptive mum Margaret Whitbread through sport I mean that 11 year old if she could have looked through a glass a glass ball and, and seen what was going on now I think she'd probably deny that all knowledge that that could happen mm. yeah because I couldn't see beyond the end of my nose to be fair mm. as 11 year old I was just Praying and hoping that uh, that I was able to succeed somewhere along the line and some magical, mystical hand would come down and save me. Yeah, I was really quite desperate, I suppose, for love and for guidance. Adversity, I think, in life is is, is, is a given. We're all going to go through that. It's just how we we embrace it, how we deal with it and move forward. I've never, like I say, looked at myself as a victim. I've always looked at stumbling blocks as stepping stones. I'll look to find a way through. And, and that's the difference, I think, for for success, you know, with people in the smallest of ways. You don't have to be a monumental success. I mean, I just so happened to work hard. I chose it as a career a sport and and that was, for me, I wanted to prove that I could go all the way. But when I talk to the young children at school, I think the most important thing I tell them is, is, is the experience, the growth. Learn from it. Try everything that you like. You never know what it is you're going to end up doing. You don't have to. You, don't, you might want to be a doctor or a nurse, you know, a fireman. And that's great. You know, you just believe in yourself. You know, That's the most important thing and, and go, go to it and have a, have a go.
1: You've been listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational talks and work experience opportunities with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson and our guest this week, Fatima Whitbread. The series producer is Anya Pierce.
0: If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young? Or you can follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. And of course, you can listen back to all our previous episodes on the free Times Radio app, or download them from wherever else you get your podcasts.
1: Thanks for listening.